We are so excited to announce that the Remedial Herstory Project will be having our first annual summer retreat coming to you in August of 2021. Join us here in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. Kick back, relax, enjoy the spa and a little bit of women's history. We are so excited to be bringing some of the best women's historians in the world to you. They are here to teach you the bits of women's history that you may have missed in history class, and we are here to guide you on the tools that you will need to get them into the classroom. The retreat is 50% pedagogy and 50% women's history. You will leave with dozens of printed lesson plans, learning materials, and tools that you can use. You can see the entire schedule of events on our website, as well as the names of some of the historians who will be presenting www.remedialherstory.com. Look for the page about the summer retreat. Come relax and enjoy the White Mountains of New Hampshire with us. Hey, Kelsey. Hey, Brooke. Want to tell everyone what's happening in today's episode? Today, we are going to be journeying to India. Oh, yay. To learn about Hinduism with our friend and board member, Chloe. (gasps) Yay. I love Chloe. Hi, Chloe. (laughs) This is exciting. Let's get into this. Hello, and welcome to Remedial Her Story, The Other 50%, the podcast that explores what happened to the women in history class. Now, here's your host, Kelsey Brooke Eckert, and her partner in crime, Brooke Neva Sullivan. Hinduism and the third gender. Oh, a third gender. A third gender. Brooke. So non-binary? <laughs> uh, yes, actually. It's oh, perfect. Sweet. So okay. um, I am so excited. This week I had the opportunity to sit down with Chloe Gardner, who is a PhD student in Scotland, and she is one of the board members for our organization. And she is doing research into uh, Hindu gods and goddesses and um, specifically researching the third gender in Hinduism which is just really fascinating. So uh, I'm going to turn it over to her to introduce herself to everybody. Okay. I am Chloe Gardner. I'm a first year PhD student in religious studies at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, My focus generally is on Hinduism and inter-religious relations, so Hindu-Muslim relations specifically, but I've done a lot of work around gender. Um, My master's thesis looked at masculinity in Hinduism and how that has shaped Indian history. Um, So for my PhD, I'm kind of continuing that by looking at the transgender community in India and how they, uh, how their concepts of gender are different from the sort of binary norm and how they draw on Hindu myth and Hindu literature, etc. to uh, justify their identity. And I have a vested interest in India and Indian history. My boyfriend is Indian, his family are all Hindu. Um, so that my uh, grandpa also fought in India during the Second World War. So I've kind of always been around stories of India and Hinduism. Uh, so that's why I wanted to dive into it a little bit more because it's such a huge religion. There's so much going on that, you know, you could study it your whole life and not get anywhere close to covering everything. So um, that's my, that's how I came to be here. I'm also a board member of the Remedial Herstory Project, uh, which I got into through my own blog, Herstory Revisited. And I was super excited to be asked to come on board and help 
sort of bring out the world history aspect of uh, this project. So yeah, that's how I how I got here. So she is an absolute wealth of knowledge, and I'm really excited to share this really interesting history with everyone. Um, I feel as a history teacher, Hinduism is very scary for me. I'm not really sure how to teach it or where to even start. And so it was really nice to be sitting with somebody whose like world is Hinduism and get real information that I can bring into my classroom tomorrow. And so, of course, this is about women's history, though. And I wanted to talk about you know, goddesses and um, important women in, in Hinduism and in Hindu history. So I asked her first, of course, if you were teaching this class, where would you start? And this is what she said. So I guess the first thing to say is that it's the oldest religion in the world or debatably the oldest religion in the world. Um, the archaeological evidence definitely suggests that it is um, it's the third largest religion in the world, around 15% of the world population after um, Christians and Muslims. But they're kind of all concentrated in the one area, India and Nepal. So India has the most Hindus. By number, Nepal has the most Hindus by percentage. Um, however, there are 60 to 70 million-ish Hindus who live outside of India as well. Um, and I guess the main thing to bear in mind about Hinduism is that there is no one text or authority comparable to the Bible or the Quran. There is no church that sort of leads or guides scripture it's very kind of localised. Um, if you study religion or Hinduism, you need the first thing you always start with is whether Hinduism should even be considered a religion as a whole because there's just so many different sects and deities and there's so much going on. Um, and the other thing to remember is that it was sort of a starting point for a lot of other religions. So Buddhism and Sikhism both came out of a Hindu context and... Um, and a lot of the Muslim rulers were based in and around India. So uh, the Mughal Empire was in India for most of its reign. So it has affected, even if you forgetting just how complex Hinduism is in itself, it's had quite a impact on several other world religions as well. Um, and I guess the one thing that everyone sort of immediately thinks of when you think of Hinduism is that it has a lot of gods there's <laughs> hundreds and thousands of gods so um they say that there's roughly about 30 330 million uh incarnations of god in hinduism uh which is <laughs> a lot more than you know the three of uh, christianity uh or the one rather um so that is sort of always the the one thing that everyone knows that you know there is different gods and they're quite recognizable they sometimes have you know blue skin and elephant heads and um they're all considered to be sort of incarnations of the one god so in the same way that jesus and the holy spirit are still part of the one god the same way that all these millions of incarnations are all just aspects of the one ultimate reality. So everyone sort of thinks of it as a polytheistic religion, a religion with lots of gods, but if you get down to the 
nitty-gritty theology of it is technically monotheistic. There's only one ultimate reality, but in practice that sort of falls apart a little bit. But yeah, they, those are probably the main things that um if you know nothing about if you know nothing about Hinduism, that's probably a good place to start. In world history classes, we all learned about Mesopotamia and the River Valley. Mm-hmm. Your favorite word. I love it. Mesopotamia. <laughs> um, and in one thing, you know, sort of new school, uh, at least new to me, where, where we had very Western-centric uh, and it almost was more like Western Civ rather than like yep. world history, is to try to include all the various river valleys around the world. And so oh. there is a the Yellow River Valley in China where mm-hmm. sort of th- their civilization originated out of um, – in Mesoamerica, there's river valley civilizations, um, Nile, obviously. Um, and in India, the Indus River Valley is yep. sort of the like hub of like Indian culture. And um, it's really rich and vibrant. And so one of the questions that I asked Chloe is how far back do they trace Hinduism in okay. Indian culture? And um, does it go back as far as the Indus River Valley? So this is what she said. Indus Valley is there's temples etc in Indus Valley civilization for that have the Hindu same Hindu gods and goddesses that are recognizable in Hindu temples today um so at least until then um a lot of the scriptures are dated uh which is different I guess to you know the Bible and the Quran we can guess but they don't explicitly say you know this was said in 610 or whatever um so but they're later but there's definitely evidence that at least from the Indus Valley civilization that is where Hinduism started and obviously it's changed a lot since then but there are still identifiable deities and language etc that that trace back to that time So one of the things that has always struck me about Hinduism is there's these various gods and goddesses, Mm -hmm. and gender seems like ever-present in the narrative and stories between these gods. And so – and that just seems, I don't know, different to me than Christianity, which is what I was raised in, and I – but of course – gender is like embedded in in Christian beliefs right. and stories um but it's I don't know it just seems more present maybe I'm maybe I'm just being a dumb westerner but I, no, I don't think you're wrong I feel like there's a lot there that they identify and subjugate the roles of a male and a female there's not a like gender fluidity at all in Christianity mm-hmm. so it's not surprising you feel that way but um I do feel like there's gender fluidity in Native American culture and in Hinduism, which is like kind of an interesting perspective too. Yeah. So I asked her to tell me a little bit about that because, I, you know, as I, I feel like a complete novice in, <laughs> in teaching it. And so, um, so this is, this is what she said. As I said in the introduction, there is this idea that there is this one ultimate reality, the Brahmin, um, and that all the other gods are forms of the same God. Basically the idea is that humans can't possibly conceptualize this huge unknowable reality that's so far removed from everything we know so it's easier for humans to relate to you know a goddess of wealth or a god of you know 
money or you know we need sort of something that's easier for humans to relate to so that's a sort of overall view of God but the important thing to note is that in Hinduism that reality is seen as genderless um it's above gender it's all genders and none that is stressed sort of in a lot of the texts um so that then gives way to the fact that there are female incarnations and male incarnations and what I'm studying for my PhD is that there are also incarnations that are neither male nor female so they're either both or they're androgynous or um Krishna one of the main gods comes to earth sometimes as a woman um to marry men (laughs) as male warriors um there's various stories of people dressed you know gods will marry each other to have a son it's all very um fluid a lot of the time in Hinduism the sort of you hear reference to the mother goddess a lot more than you would to like the holy father um which is obviously the more sort of Christian uh norm I guess um so it's definitely not that you know there's no male identity to the god but it's just that he can or see <laughs> automatically said he because that's just sort of the norm especially in English but the god is beyond you know anything that we can articulate so in my thesis the the hijras as they're called uh, a lot of them refer to themselves as the third gender and they draw really heavily on religious texts and religious imagery religious deities who um, either combine concepts of gender who deny concepts of gender and that's basically where I'm starting with my PhD is to go back to the mythology and to go back to the texts and look for examples and how that even though these were written thousands of years ago um, which in itself is quite remarkable because people tend to think that you know transgender and issues of gender full stop are very modern concepts but actually in India they're not they go back to these thousand year old texts so yeah it's definitely much more complex than it is in uh, western religion I would say. So as I was listening to her talk I'm just realizing how this religion is it has so many powerful goddesses that are in it and it seems really contradictory to what I know about Indian culture and so how like how is it possible that a faith can be so open and and have these powerful goddesses and yet the women of India be not empowered in a lot of ways. And so here's a couple examples to share with you. Um, there are British, you know, when the British move into India, there are these stories that they write back to the Western world about. And I've read about some of these in some world history texts. Um, India, even on modern surveys is always the lowest in terms of women's, one of the lowest in terms of women's rights. And, um, and, so in you know as the british are colonizing india and coming in there are all these accounts of um you know first of all ch- child brides being right. sold off at like 9 years old or as soon as they they have their period um sometimes even before um brutalized in marriage because there was this 
belief that, um, you know, the, the virgins could produce more babies or something like that. Um, but of course these girls aren't sometimes not even like built or ready to, to give birth. Um, and there's like really high death rates among these child brides, which so is how really far scary. back are we talking? Um, we're talking the last like 200 years. And okay. so, um, and then there were also these accounts of, um, husbands who would die and they would burn, you know, the, the man on the, on this like pyre to send him off into the afterlife. And the expectation was that his living wife would join him. And because like, what purpose does she serve now that he's gone? Wow. And so it was really hard knowing that sort of information and listening to Chloe talk about this faith that these people have. Yeah. And how, like, how do those two, how do those two things go together? And am I just reading really biased sources about India? And I figured I should ask one of the, the yeah. more qualified people. So, um, I was thankful that she took the time to take the question because she might also just, uh, I know as you're giving it to me, it's not the India I'm aware of. Um, in my mind, just, you know, I work with India, right? Yeah. Now. I hire people there. I help, you know, partner with that country yeah. very often. And I don't know of that, that culture, um, between women and men. And I don't know if it still exists. I don't know if it's just Hindu culture or yeah. where well, in India that still exists or what, cause there are large Christian populations in India. There's large Muslim populations in India. Like most religions exist there. Yeah. So yeah, I'm so curious what she has to say. Yeah. So this is what she said. I think that's a really important thing to address and it's something that I wish more people knew about. So there's a, a survey done in 2010, I think, um, that compared all the world religions um, in terms of gen women's rights and gender discrimination and Hinduism worse, uh, ranked worst. Um, and India repeatedly tops, uh, if tops is the right word, but... Um, you know, tables of women's rights, they, even though the thing with India is that the law is often not the norm. So although there are laws protecting against gender, protecting against caste discrimination in such a huge country with such a huge population, it's impossible to police it really. And um, so you get a lot of uh, caste variations and how women are treated, a lot of regional variations and how women are treated. Um, but they're definitely, overall, women are still, I hesitate to even say second-class citizens. Um, you gave a lot of good examples, but um, there's still this over-pervasive view that um, daughters are karmic punishments. There are financial burdens because dowries are still a common thing. They're actually becoming more popular again in India. Um, the government at one point was talking about um, banning scans in pregnancy that allow you to find out the sex of your child because female infanticide was so high and there was a concern that uh, women would abort their babies if they were if they knew that they were going to have a girl domestic abuses and um, pretty much ubiquitous in India so there's definitely um that's what's always interested me about India as well and that's what continues to fascinate me and disturb me is how, as you say, how do you reconcile these two traditions, I guess, because on one side, you know, looking at, you know, what I'm going to talk about in the goddesses and, you know, in one sense, 
it's almost the most empowering vision of women that I've ever encountered. But then when you compare that to the reality on the ground, it doesn't seem to translate. And again, I don't want to generalise too much. Obviously, things are getting better. And a lot of the things I think have been exaggerated, like Sati, uh, as you were talking about, the widow burning on the fire, the British banned that and made it you know, a huge thing, a huge moral standpoint that the British took. But actually, there's a lot of debate about how common that was in the first place and whether it was as widespread as the British sort of made out. So it's definitely um, not the case that, you know, all Indian women are treated maltreated and oppressed, but societally, there's definitely a big problem with it. And I am just as confused as you are about how... <laughs> How such a devout Hindu country can, you know, accommodate that within this tradition which worships goddesses and women and the feminine so um, so highly, it, it doesn't make sense to me either. The Remedial History Project is a nonprofit working to get women's history into the K-12 curriculum. Our goal is to create free learning materials for educators to use tomorrow. Head over to our website, www.remedialhistory.com. Download everything and give it to a friend. We need women's history in the classroom like yesterday. If you're not a history teacher and you want to do something to help us out, head over to our store. We've got all sorts of fun things for you to peruse, and all of that goes to supporting our mission. If you think what we're doing is needed, you can support the Remedial History Project by becoming a sponsor through Anchor or becoming a patron. Patrons get access to behind-the-scenes materials, gear, bonus episodes, and more. Most importantly, they're putting their money where their mouth is and helping us get women's history into the classroom. Our history maker, Jeffrey. Our history heroes, Christian, Brooke, and Barbara. Our historians, Jamie, Kent, Jenna, and Nancy. And our history allies, Nicole, Mark, Sarah, Leah, Anne, and Alicia. Thank you so much. You all make this show possible. So after we hashed that out, I asked Chloe to guide me in understanding some of the Hindu goddesses. And, yeah. you know, it's hard when I look at all the, and there are hundreds of Hindu gods and goddesses. And so how am I as a Westerner not like, you know, versed in this? How am I supposed to weed through to figure out which ones are really important to know? Yeah. Like where do you start? Yeah. Where do I start? And um, which of these goddesses, you know, does she enjoy researching? And so she identified a few of them that she's pretty obsessed with. Devi, Kali, Baharati Mata, and Lakshmi. And I am pretty much obsessed with all of their stories. <laughs> so. I've actually heard of two of them, which I'm kind of proud of myself about. Oh, good. I know. That's cool. They all are really badass. Yeah. So this is these are the little blurbs that she shared with me about each of those each of those people and and kind of origin stories as well. So here's what she said. I'll start by talking about the the goddess um, who's known as Devi or Devi. So she is the sort of 
again, I guess the ultimate goddess and all the other goddesses are seen as incarnations of this one ultimate goddess who is part of the ultimate genderless reality. Um, so it just really means goddess, but it's she's generally referred to as the great mother or the mother goddess. And she's understood to be an embodiment of Shakti, which means the feminine and creative power of the universe. So she's eternal and formless, um, but she has a lot of famous incarnations who I'll talk about in a minute. What is interesting is that all her incarnations have husbands or consorts and a male counterpart to balance them, whereas Devi in her most complete form does not. She's completely independent. She's not reliant on um, male control or male power, although there is a belief that they sort of balance. So almost a yin and yang that you can't have the female power without the masculine power and vice versa. But that's seen as a much more abstract sort of energy kind of thing rather than a, a physical, you need a man and you need a woman. Um so almost all Hindu sects accept the goddess, worship the goddess, and especially Bhakti traditions, which are mystical traditions or devotional traditions, they put a big emphasis on uh, the goddess. And you can trace uh, right back to the earliest Hindu scriptures, they talk about um, the goddess and how she, you know, how she empowers the other gods and how women can draw on her power which is just really interesting and today she's there are lots of variations of her for different contexts so um one that I remember reading about is during an AIDS epidemic they sort of created a version of the goddess that people could pray to to you know for for salvation from AIDS or from protection from AIDS so even basically all through Indian history or Hindu history she has been reimagined for what people need at that time. But she's also seen as almost dangerously powerful. So there is the idea that you need the male energy to restrain her because if she is left un- unleashed, you know, she'll wreak havoc on the universe, she will destroy the universe. And that's where the more patriarchal side of it starts to come in I think so to on that point the best goddess to talk about is Kali who is my favorite goddess I love her I've got pictures of her all over my house (laughs) um so she is an incarnation of a different incarnation Durga who is the warrior form of the goddess and she is the wife or consort of Shiva who is one of the main male gods one of the three main male incarnations and Kali is known as the destroyer of evil forces and the protector of innocence and the most powerful embodiment of Shakti, so the most raw embodiment of female power. So she's seen as a protector on one hand, but also as a destroyer, which is sort of similar to her husband. That's his sort of karmic role is uh, to be the destroyer of the universe, but it's not seen in a negatively it's destroying bad destroying evil that sort of destroyer so again they're the earliest mention of her is 600 AD um, but the ideas come much before then you know they're building on the sort of wider goddess tradition her name just means black uh, that's the Hindi word for black 
uh, but she's always described as a sort of warrior. Um, there's a 6th century text called the Deva Mahatayam, which uh, in which she destroys demons. And that's the where this sort of idea of her as a warrior demon really starts. Other stories focus more on her relationship with her husband and how, again, this idea of balance and how they balance each other out. So if you see depictions of Kali, one, it's, this is what I find most interesting about her is if you see her, she's immediately recognisable because she wears a, a necklace with heads, human heads around it and carrying a man's head in her arm, one of her forearms, and standing on the chest of her husband, Shiva. Um, so obviously, <laughs> that's quite a powerful image of, you know, male domination uh, and sort of resisting the patriarchy. And it's meant to symbolise evil, that she's, you know, slaying evil, she's a slayer of demons. But I just find it really interesting that that's always embodied as men. It's like this female you know, the good warrior is female and the, you know, the evil that she's overcoming is is human men or demon men. Um, and the idea behind her uh, lying on her husband or standing on her husband is that the story goes that she was in a war and she was, uh, she bit crazy with rage and nobody could calm her down. No one could quell her bloodlust. And the only thing that stopped her was that her husband lay on the ground in front of her. And basically if she'd stepped on him, she would have killed him. And that was the only way that she could be controlled was through her love for her husband. So as I was saying, that's where this sort of, um, the more, you can see how that ties more into sort of traditional ideas of a woman needing to be controlled. And a woman has this power, yes, but it's up to her husband how she uses this power. And it just is quite a sort of paradox to me that she can be, um, that that image is so closely interwoven with the idea of you know her destroying the the heads um just completely off topic but her famous face is her with her um tongue lolling out like to show that she's crazy and that's actually what inspired the rolling stones famous logo is Callie's face that's just <laughs> one of my favorite little Callie related facts um so more symbolically, the things that she carries in her arm uh, represent divine knowledge and the triumph of good over evil, just sort of generally godly things. Um, and she's usually portrayed as with having blue skin because that's just how all deities are usually portrayed in Hindu art. But traditionally, she's black. She's completely black, which I also think has really nice... Um, sort of progressive you know to have this not only a powerful woman but a powerful black woman uh you know sort of standing on men so I just she's just a really interesting case and she's so different to all the other deities even within Hinduism that are geared much more towards the traditional you know subservient wife Kali is just the complete opposite of that and just you know she has this almost uncontrollable power that has the power to destroy the universe which I just I love I, <laughs> I wish more people uh you know tapped into that she is actually becoming quite popular with western feminism for that reason but there's a lot of um concern about that that she's just being appropriated for you know the white people <laughs> without that don't really understand the sort of 
religious and uh, sort of traditional aspects of her her story. But I don't. I'm obviously it's not for me to say. But I think any tradition that celebrates her as a sort of symbol of female power is a good thing. Um, and I certainly find it empowers me quite a lot. So yeah, she's one of my favourites. Bharat Mata is Mother India, that's what it translates as. So basically she is the personification of India. Uh, and her story is presented as being eternal and you know she's always been there and she's always looked after India but actually the notion of Bharat Mata was constructed during the colonial era uh, by nationalists who wanted to have a sort of rallying point over the British and the idea of you know Britannia the British goddess almost that was used a lot in British imagery they wanted a sort of equal part to contract that and today she's probably if you look at the Indian news today or Indian media that is probably the goddess that you'll hear referred to most often she's just become this real rallying point for Hindu nationalism uh, in general she definitely has given women a lot of power in especially within the Hindu nationalist movement so Indira Gandhi the female prime minister of India was believed to be a reincarnation of uh, Devi or as Bharat Mata she was often referred to as Bharat Mata um, and they incorporated a lot of the previous goddess traditions into this to create this sort of eternal history for her but Basically, Bharat Mata again combines the ideal of women as mother and women as warrior, which is the two sort of aspects of the divine feminine. So on the one hand, she is seen as, you know, a violent defender of India. She vanquishes the enemy, which is mostly now portrayed as the Muslim enemy. There's a, so much... Hindu Muslim violence which is you know a whole other podcast in itself but that really is now how she sort of channeled that she is she protects the the Hindu Indian from the Muslim outsider um and women are encouraged to join the nationalist cause and to take up arms you know there are a lot of empowering movements where women are taught self-defense and they're you know taught how to you know given quite a lot of political power in the name of Bharat Mata. So it's definitely a good thing in some senses, but on the other side, she's also seen as this mother figure and men are urged to go to war in defence of their mother. And it really draws on the sort of age-old tale of, you know, a vulnerable woman needing protected by her uh, you know, warrior sons and the idea that India herself can't defend herself because she's a weak, defenseless woman. Um, and that in turn, sort of women are told, you can be warriors as long as you remember that your mother's first. And sort of very much, um, it's like a two-sided coin that on the one hand, she embodies this power that we have over, you know, over the whole nation and the idea that, you know, women are the ones who carry on tradition, who pass on, you know, genes and blood is something that's present in every culture, I guess. But at the same time, they're sort of reminding 
women that they shouldn't step out of that box and that they still need men to fight for them and protect them. And that has a lot of issues when women's body become the site of national honour. So during the partition, there was horrible instances of women being kidnapped, being raped, being forced into suicide because they're attacking the women was seen as attacking the community or the country that they came from. And I think it's easy to trace that back to the idea of the whole of India being a woman or a goddess. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think she's a really interesting case for the present day. Um, But she definitely draws on goddess traditions from from, you know, throughout Indian history. Lakshmi is, um, again, meant to be an incarnation of the mother goddess, uh, but she's a much more uh, benevolent, I guess, goddess. And that's not to say that she doesn't have power, but she is seen as the noble goddess. Uh, So Lakshmi in Sanskrit means to perceive, observe, know, understand. So she's kind of the goddess of wisdom, the goddess of wealth, love, beauty, joy, prosperity, all the things that, you know, everyone wants in their life. So that's why she's become, you know, so important to Hindu worship. And she is the husband, no, she's the wife of uh, Vishnu, who is another one of the three main gods, but he's arguably the most important one. He's the one who is worshipped most his incarnations are worshipped the most and he is the sustainer of the universe so the idea that the reason that the world hasn't gone up in flames basically is is because of Vishnu so she then automatically becomes important because of her connection with him but she's also an important goddess in her own right and she assists him in his his task to you know save humanity but um she herself has many different incarnations that that link up to Vishnu's incarnation so um Sita and Radha are the two most uh common ones who I can talk about a bit later but uh Lakshmi herself is has been worshipped at least since a millennium before Christ so she is probably the oldest named goddess Uh, I think there are texts going back right to a thousand years before Christ that mention Lakshmi by name uh, and there are hundreds of temples etc from you know thousands of years ago that are dedicated to Lakshmi and unlike some of the other deities who tend to be limited to a certain era of Hindu history or Hindu mythology, Lakshmi is basically present all the way through. So she plays a really important role in the Mahabharata and the Ramayana, which are the two main epic stories, uh, which again, I can talk about later, but she just is important all the way through basically. And the Valley, which is uh, the biggest Hindu festival or one of the biggest Hindu festivals is very much associated with Lakshmi and the all the rituals etc around the valley are in honor of her and to welcome her into the home and to pray that you know she'll bless the home with love and prosperity and basically she's the one that you want the attention from yeah she's just one of the the most important goddesses and again she's quite easy to uh, spot she's always 
Uh, she always has an owl with her because to represent wisdom um, and also overpowering darkness. That's what the owl, you know, the owl in Hinduism is more uh, about overpowering darkness. And she has four arms to represent the four main areas of life, which are duty, pleasure, prosperity and liberation from rebirth. So she's the sort of all the key theological concepts, I guess are tied into Lakshmi. Um, she's also usually riding an elephant, uh, which again is an, an animal which can, it serves as a symbol of strength and fertility and family and all the sort of important things that are important to the mother goddess. So she is just, you can't really understand the other goddesses and the other incarnations that even though they might be more well-known and their names might be, more well known you because they are incarnations of Lakshmi it all comes back to Lakshmi if that makes sense so then I asked Chloe to tell me about a real woman that existed in early Hinduism and um, so this she identified one and told me a little bit about her story so this is what she said it is also important to note that um, the Rig Vedas, which are some of the earliest texts, so about 2000 BCE, uh, a lot of them were composed by women or were said to be composed by women. I guess it goes back to the age old, as you said to me earlier, you know, for most of history, Anonymous was a woman. So now there's kind of the assumption that if it isn't stated who, who passed it down, it was women. Um, but she is the earliest historical figure from Hinduism, but also that's debatable as well because, as I said before, the boundary between history and myth in Hinduism and in Indian history is really hard to distinguish. So she's said to be the author of some, or not the author, the reciter, because it was all recited in those days, um, the reciter of some of the most famous texts but she is also mentioned in them so it's hard to tell whether she's a character or an author or both but um there are so the Ramayana which I mentioned before obviously she was involved in the um recitation of that she was involved in the Mahabharata which is the other famous epic um and in the Rig Veda which is one of the most sort of central ancient texts uh, there's at least 27 hymns which are known to be well known to be authored by female uh, reciters so I think it's important to note that if we do go back to ancient India and we do go back to ancient Hinduism women do have a status there as intellectuals and religious figures and Again, that, I guess, brings us back to the big question of how that has changed over time and how did it become that only men could, you know, try and pass down these traditions and how did it become that only men came to learn the language and was it in part because women had such a role in these sort of forming these early texts? Is that why women are so prominent in them? And do they sort of diminish in the tradition because the status of women diminished I don't know I, I don't have the answer I don't have the answer to that but I just um wanted to sort of mention Lopamudra and others like her just as a sort of reminder I guess that it isn't all 
the fault of that. It's not all that we can't all be attributed to the fact that men have created Hinduism in their image. You know, women did have agency and they did have uh, intellectual agency as well as social agency to form these ancient traditions. And if you consider that, it becomes less surprising that the goddess plays such an important role in, in Hinduism more generally. Chloe told me a story about Sita, who is uh, Ram's um, kind of problematic partner, uh, wife, and um, the story between them about her eventual exile is um, kind of a problematic story in understanding male and female relationships Mm -hmm. in Hindu culture. And so Chloe spent a little bit of time sharing, first of all, the story and some of its variations with me, um, but then also her analysis about what that story means and where it fits in some of the paradoxes we've seen in um, culture versus religion. Sita is one of the incarnations of Lakshmi that I was talking about. Her husband is Ram, who is the, or Rama, who is the most, probably the most well-known incarnation of Vishnu. Um, He is basically lauded as the ideal man, the ideal husband, the ideal king, just the the all-around what everyone should, or every man should attain to be like Ram. And the Ramayana, which is the story of Ram and Sita, is probably the most well-known, the most well-read, the most well-versed Hindu text. There has been numerous television portrayals and film portrayals. And, um, you know, from talking to my boyfriend, you know, that's the story that kids sort of grow up learning about from when they're tiny. So it's definitely, this is something that influences Hindus from, you know, the earliest age possible so it's a huge huge epic so I don't want to <laughs> don't want to you know spend too long going through it but the very basics of it is that uh, Ram is exiled um, for a bit and for a bit it's like many years but in the millennia of his life it's not much he is exiled uh, the, he and his wife and his brother go to live in the forest and Sita is kidnapped by a demon king called Ravana. And the main plot of the Ramayana is Ram's quest to reclaim his wife, to slay the demon king, to save her. But where it gets problematic is when he does save her. And he basically doesn't believe that she wouldn't have slept with the demon king or that he wouldn't have raped her, which she seems to be equally as held guilty for and she you know protests that you know he never touched her that she's only ever been with Ram that she's loyal to Ram and he forces her to go through a trial by fire in which she has to walk through fire to prove her innocence and the idea is that if she's innocent the gods will protect her from harm and she is protected and she proves her innocence but the people of the kingdom don't believe when they return from exile a hero uh the people of the kingdom don't believe that she's innocent and ram basically says well i know you're innocent you've proved it before the gods but your reputation is going to banish my reputation so you need to leave and he exiles her and her sons um and some versions of the story she then kills herself at the end because she can't conceptualize a life without her husband so 
there are thousands of different versions of the Ramayana and my master's thesis uh, was on Ram and why Ram is a problematic figure of toxic masculinity, which is a very controversial opinion because he's so well regarded in India. Um, But the story, the main issue that I have with the story is that it has been used as a sort of blueprint of how women should behave. And the difference is, is that these other goddesses, like the sort of overall Devi, she is not something that women should aspire to be, whereas Sita is something that the human woman should aim to be. So um, it basically, the whole thing is aimed at emphasizing the husband's superiority and the almost religious duty of a wife to be subservient to him, even at her own costs um and she the history of it there's many a lot of people uh, think that the idea of sati as we talked about before comes back to the story of her going into the fire and her not wanting to live without her husband um but the story has definitely changed over time it's definitely becoming more popular than ever now just because ram is becoming more popular and the hindu right really draw on ram a lot um, he's their sort of cover boy almost as, you know, this is what we should all be aiming for. So automatically Sita then becomes that for, for women. And she's still all the sort of, every scholar that's looked into it has basically concluded that this idea remains in India. And that's where, you know, we are talking about before at the start, but how do you reconcile these two versions of womanhood that Hinduism presents and in my opinion it's through it's through Sita that's where you find the link to these two versions of Hinduism because she is an incarnation of these all-powerful goddesses but there it's almost a way of saying but on earth this is how you act this is how you know you behave towards your husband and you don't question your husband and he can abuse you he can discredit you he can you know banish you if he wants but that it's your wifely duty to obey that um and she this is also backed up by there's the laws of manu which are um let me check when they were written a long time ago 2200 ce sorry so the laws of manu then they also basically back up this idea that um women are inherently evil they must be totally dependent and obedient to men and Sita has almost come to embody those kind of views so I just that's why I think she's so problematic because um it's not seen as just a story and increasingly you know most the thing with these is they're they're mythological, but in India they're seen as history. They're seen as real people who lived on Earth. These are real battles that were fought, and that automatically in justifies you know the treatment of women and the abuse of women, and just the the idea that a woman's whole purpose is to be devoted to her husband, basically. However, there are there have been attempts to sort of change this interpretation, which is 
important to to mention I think it doesn't have to be the story that it has become so a lot of people have tried to interpret it more symbolically so Sita's devotion to her husband is equivalent to the human's devotion to God and you know they should trust in God and they should follow God which you know again is quite common throughout religion you know Sufism and Islam that's a very common theme that you know the, the human is to God what a wife is to her husband, but that still inherently, you know, says that men are godly and women are inferior. Uh, and there have also been rewritings of the, the Ramayana, which have a different ending and which basically have Sita uh, stand up to Ram and willingly leave him. You know, she's not banished. She says, well, you know, you don't believe me, I'm going to leave you. And there definitely are efforts to have a more feminist interpretation of Sita, but I think it's hard. (laughs) I don't think it, she's not, you know, if I was going to draw feminist inspiration from Hinduism, it would not be from Sita, in my opinion. Um, But, uh, for example, in the text, she says to um, her followers, do not view me as a goddess, but as a defenseless woman fighting for my self-respect. So even in the text itself, she's sort of portraying herself as a human woman, which sets her up to be a model for human women. Um, but it's it's like everything, you know, and it's also, it's not just a Hindu story. There are tellings of it in Buddhism and Jainism and across South Asia. So it has been interpreted differently. And again, I don't want to generalise and say, you know, that anyone who believes in the Ramayana automatically thinks that that's an okay way to treat women but it's definitely easy to see the correlation I think you know it's interesting on the surface there's all these gods and all these goddesses but as you get into the stories of these goddesses I'm starting to realize that they're all a little bit complicated and um you know even the the even Kali who like you know it's her husband that holds her back from her, yeah. you know, rampage. Um, they all sort of have a, a tone where they need that masculine to balance them. Yeah. Do you see that same parallel the other way? Like, do the male gods need that female yin-yang thing to balance them? Um, not as much, but historically, yes. Yeah, so when I was looking at Ram and, you know, his masculinity or his toxic masculinity is... Um, I was sort of claiming earlier depictions of Ram, if you go a lot further back to early art and earlier descriptions of him, they emphasize his femininity and his, um, he's almost drawn like a woman, you know, he has sort of womanly features and they're, that sort of feminine side of him is emphasized that, you know, he's caring and he's loving and he's protective and all the qualities that now are sort of embodied by the mother goddess but over time that changes to he becomes you know if you look at images of him now he's got abs and you know he's really <laughs> really buff and he's got you know it's art is bow and the the famous there's a story in the Ramayana where he wins Sita which in itself is an issue um by having an archery competition with you know his rivals um and now that's the image that pervades of him you know him with his bow and his six-pack and um defeating ready to slay the demons and um I think that sort of side of it has been diminished a lot in sort of 
recent rhetoric. But again, it really depends on the on the sect of Hinduism as well. I think tantric Hinduism has a lot of emphasis on balance and the joining of the male and the female and um symbolically and you know physically. And I think in traditions like that, it's seen as a much more equal that, you know, the man is as dependent on the woman. And there is definitely theologically in the ultimate, you know, the ultimate reality, you have the the Shakti. The, you need to have the feminine and the masculine of the divine. Neither could exist without the other. But in the stories, especially now I, that I've come across, it's definitely not something which is emphasized though again as I said before there are many instances of the gods changing gender or um you know Krishna who is the same incarnation as uh Vishnu who is also Ram they uh he changes sex he comes to earth as a woman to marry a male soldier so you know there's definitely they're not always horrible abusive (laughs) husbands to you know that's not always the pattern but I think recent attempts have definitely tried to to highlight the subservience of of the wife under the man I want to look into tantric things uh, the tantric um tradition because that sounds really interesting and so similar to the other religions you mentioned that branch off because you talk about how it changes over time. It makes me question, is it religion that influences culture or culture that influences religion? Because that same pattern that you were talking about happens in Christianity. It happens in Islam. It happens like in Judaism. Um, And it's weird because the religions almost start out more progressive and like, dynamic and then they like it's almost like the nature of religion sort of reverts to conservatism that's my bias but that's what happens (laughs) yeah no I think that's definitely true and I think it's quite telling that the laws of Manu the text that I mentioned that is very explicitly patriarchal and you know is completely dismissive of women is quite a late text um compared to the earlier Vedic texts where you know we have a lot more discussion of the mother goddess and um I think I mean that's just an issue with as you say with every religion and you know it's I guess it's the whole which came first the chicken or the egg you know is it men and also it's important I guess to think about the fact that in Hinduism scriptures are related by Brahmin who are male priests women are not allowed to be Brahmin and um, they're not allowed to or again this has sort of changed over time but traditionally they weren't allowed to learn Sanskrit they weren't allowed to you know these were esoteric traditions that only the male elite knew so what got passed down and what got emphasized was very much in the hands of the elite men of society which again is probably true of most religion but I think that's important to bear in mind because there is evidence that all these things were present in early Hinduism but what has been emphasized and what has been lost over time was due to you know male humanity (laughs) and human choices of which you know which stories are we going to pass down so I think that is also one explanation so it's maybe it's not necessarily that they weren't in the religion but it's just that 
they have been the ones that have been pulled out and that have been used to justify uh, certain social customs or social norms. I mean, South Asia is just a really interesting case for that, generally, because Pakistan, for example, is a Muslim country and they reject caste completely, but caste is still a thing in uh, Pakistan and, you know, most families will still have a caste and will still judge based on caste, even though theologically they, you know, they totally reject that. So I think that's something that has always been a problem in, in South Asia generally is where to draw the line. And I think I probably should have said right at the start when we were talking about, you know, what is Hinduism, a lot of people don't make the distinction between it being a religion and a culture, um, especially today, Indian culture is seen as synonymous with Hinduism and vice versa. And the, yeah, I did say, you know, should Hinduism be considered a religion? A lot of people think that the British sort of created that title to because they had a distinction between culture and religion and they wanted to put religion in a box and say well you know this is religion and this is culture but actually in India and I would argue in quite a lot of contexts there there is no distinction you know the sort of um dharma duty which is so central to to Hinduism is very much about the stage of your life and your duty to your family and your duty to you know caste dictates which jobs you can do so you know they're technically religious systems but they have very practical real world things so that again I think that's why it's so hard to to say well did this come from the religion Hinduism or did this come from Indian society because historically there was no distinction to them and it's quite a recent thing as in from the British era onwards to try and put them into neat little boxes um which is a big part of my thesis as well as uh, the transgender community combine a lot of Hindu and Muslim rights. Um, and again, this is another thing that, you know, they're in popular discourse, they're completely polarised. You have to be Muslim or Hindu, you have to be male or female. And the Hijra community just say, no, we don't. <laughs> we can be male and female, we can be Hindu and Muslim. And that's why I love them because I it fights against sort of this regimented you know binary so yeah I think that's a really good point that you make that it is impossible to to say where this comes from and I think it is society that has dictated which version of the goddess you know prevails ultimately and sadly I think I think Sita is winning the the war at the moment but um yeah there are plenty of other positive goddesses to to draw on in the future hopefully um, is there anything like a like closing message that you wanted to leave people with? Um, I don't know. I guess just to to sum up that, I guess maybe as a caveat to everything I've said about you know the position of women in Hinduism, that I do love Hinduism purely because women have such an interesting and complex place in it. And it's just unlike any religion, other religion that I've ever studied. And not to say that women don't have their own interesting and unique histories within other world traditions. Of course they do. But I just think the the paradox that you spoke of at the very start of the, the sheer contrast between this culture, which 
worships the mother goddess almost above the male god but at the same time has had such a poor record of how they've translated that I just think is really important but I think it's important that people do learn about the 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 prominence of women in in Hinduism and in Indian society and know that there is a lot of good you know a lot of good stuff in there and a lot of things in there that can be really empowering and that really do create a great model of you know balance and equality between the male and the female and neither and you know even the whole idea of the binary and you know there's just so much there to work with that I just think it's important to take a balanced view of it and not just to you know view all Indian women as sitas that (laughs) you know are just you know subservient and uh, abused little creatures that you know are at the whims of men but also that there are those people that there is that tradition and I just think it's really important to remember both sides of the coin and not sort of generalize one way or the other. So Brooke Chloe was kind enough as a board member mm-hmm. to help me build a lesson plan on Hinduism to share Chloe, with everybody. You're so nice. So she asked a really awesome question, which is taking a look at these goddesses yep. and are they feminist tropes or are these real like icons for mm. for women to admire? Um, and so students get to look not only at visual representations of these goddesses and uh, which she described obviously here, but I think seeing them is is even more powerful. And yeah. then some versions of their stories to help students really understand the role that these these goddesses can play in um, empowering or you know not really empowering right. young women. Very cool. What a fun lesson plan for students. Yeah, and we love. I mean, the artwork I bet is unreal. It's unreal. <sighs> love it. Very cool. I'm Brooke Sullivan. I'm Kelsey Eckert. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to Remedial Her Story, the other 50%. Please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to your podcasts to bring more voices to the conversation. We really appreciate that effort. Until next time.